So I'm reading today from 2 Samuel 23, 1-7. I'm going to be using the uh, ESV, English Standard Version. So it's 2 Samuel 23, 1-7. It's the, uh, David is using this one as a preferred for some of the, the way the text is phrased. Starting verse 23. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me with an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God indeed. I don't know if you've ever thought about what your final words might be. Perhaps that's a macabre topic, a little bit dour to think about. But what would you say? Would you say to those you love, I love you? If they don't know that already, I suggest you go and tell them now and not wait until you're on your deathbed. Would you give final advice to your children? Do you think they would listen any more then than they do now? Would you list your achievements? Would you lament your failures? How would your final words sum up your life? Would they sum up your life? Now, some final utterances are definitely spontaneous. They're very famous utterance from, uh, from Latimer to Ridley. Uh, these were martyrs in the English uh, Reformation, the history of the English Reformation. Uh, Hugh Latimer, as he was being burned on the stake, looked over to Nicholas Ripley, who was also being burned on the stake, and he quoted from Polycarp, an ancient church father, or, or interpretively quoted, saying this, as they were being burnt alive. Be a good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, that it shall never be put out. Some are personal. In fact, David's other last words to Solomon in King, 1 Kings chapter 2 are personal words to, king, to the future King Solomon. But these are intentional, public, formal words that uh, David is saying to the people of Israel. And even from the introduction, before he even starts speaking, we learn something. Let me read uh, verses 1 to the beginning of verse 3 again. And listen as we do this to the three things that jump out at you. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His words are on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly, and then it goes on. 
So I want you to see these three things. First of all, he's the son of Jesse, he's raised on high, and he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, if you're looking at the uh, NIV translation, you'll see that it's a little more obtuse there. But a better translation here is, in fact, the word sweet psalmist. Son of Jesse, David comes from very humble beginnings. Jesse had no public profile. Bethlehem, in fact, was such a tiny little town that there was no, it wasn't even registered on the rolls in terms of collecting men for the army because it was so insignificant and small. And we see that in Micah uh, 5, verse 2. He's also the youngest of all of Jesse's children. He's the eighth son. And uh, seven is the number which represents completeness in Hebrew in the Old Testament times. And my daughter is, in fact, uh, just tried out for a volleyball team. And in the way it works there is you try out and you get ranked. And the top 12 get into the team, and the 13th misses out. So being the 13th of 12 is not that great. Now, David here is the 8th of 7. It's not that great. He's actually like less than the youngest one. He's the sort of like overflow, the, the remnant that sort of like turned up from the litter. So he's not born of, into a name or a family with any profile. He's born in a town with basically no profile or significance. And he's born to, into the birth order as probably the most insignificant you can be. And now I hope you can identify with this. I hope that most of us can re relate to this. Most of us are not born as princes or princesses. And I don't imagine there are any here. Correct me if I'm wrong. No? Okay. Secondly, he's raised up high. The king of the family of Jacob is the words that he used here. What it's saying is that he is the king over all of the descendants from the tribes that came from the children of Jacob. Now, it's important to realize here that he didn't climb up to this position. He was raised up by God to this position. And it may be harder for us to relate to this because, again, I look around and I don't see too many kings or queens. Even those of you in later life somehow have not managed to be a king or a queen. But if we look at and try to understand this idea of anointing in a more godly way, I think we can relate to this. If you go back, in fact, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared for us in advance to do. In other words, we are anointed to specific things, called to certain things. Just as David was called to be king, we too are called into different things. And I hear a lot of you maybe saying, well, my life is so busy, it's so crowded, I don't know how to find those anointed things. And I have a feeling that when I, I, I hear that, and I have a feeling that when I get and stand before the Lord, he's not going to say, well, it wasn't that you didn't have time, he's going to ask me, well, why did you do that? And why did you do that? And what were you thinking when you did that? None of those things were anointed for you to do. We have this sense in which if we can strip out the idolatrous things that we pursue, we will have the time, we'll have the space to pursue the things that God has anointed us to. So first of all, he is the son of Jesse. Secondly, he's raised on high. He's anointed to a purpose. Thirdly, he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. In other words, he's a worshiper. God opens the hearts of the coarse, the uncouth, the ignorant to worship. Now, more than being anointed for good works, we are also called into relationship with him, into a relationship of worship. 
Now, whether it be the melodious harmonies of Mary or the joyful noise that I make when I'm singing, regardless, we are entering into that dialogue with God. And it's more than just music, of course. It's the dialogue of the Spirit-inspired prayer and reflection, where we do listen and strip out those idols and find out what God has really called us to. And it's worshipping by doing the anointed work that God has called us to. Otherwise, that anointed work is meaningless. So we start to see that in David's life, as a sweet psalmist of Israel, as a worshipper, he's really being described as a person who had an understanding of rhythm, of being able to step back and walk in relationship with God. So, what are these words of the ordinary but anointed or called worshipper all about? What is this ordinary called worshipper saying in his final words? We're going to look at three things. The need for a righteous ruler, the hope of a covenant household, and the destruction of the ungodly. So let's look at those three things again. The need for a righteous ruler, the hope of a covenant household, the destruction of of the ungodly. Now before we um, jump into the need for a righteous ruler, I do want to go back to the first parts of verse 3 and just point out that these are inspired prophetic words. His words are on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel, the stable, unmovable God of Israel is the one that gave David these words. And if you're like me, the first thing you think of there as you're thinking about last words is, well, of course David's word, last words were great because God wrote them. What an advantage he has in the great words, last great words competition, right? Hopefully you think a little deeper than I do when you first read this. And you go on to hear these words and reflect on them, not as words of some man who's making a few last remarks, but the words of God, prophetic words of God to us. The need for a righteous ruler. Let me read the second part of verses 3 to the end of 4. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of the Lord, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth, on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now, we have here a definition of a, of a good ruler, of a righteous ruler. It's one who rules justly over all those over which he has authority, he or she has authority. And it's further defined here by ruling in fear of the Lord. How do you determine what is ruling justly? You have to have a stance of humility that lives and reflects and works and worships in fear of the Lord. You need to know and understand and obey his precepts. Not those of this current age or those of your family background or those of something that appeal or give you uh, a sense of success or happiness. No, you need to understand, obey the precepts of the Lord. And again, this requires a time investment in relationship uh, with uh, time to submit to and into what the Lord has for us. And where does this time come from? Again, I'm going to repeat this because I think it's so important. When we get to heaven, when God says to me, and I stand before him, the excuse, you know, I was just so busy 
doing all the things that I had that were so important. I just didn't have time to spend that time in reflection and prayer. I didn't have time to spend that time worshiping and listening to you. He's going to turn around and say, well, why did you do all those things? Now, half of them might be good things, but they were not things that I was called to do. And if you are living a life which does not allow you time of reflection and prayer, time in the Word, ask yourself, what are you filling up your life with? Which is not to say there are not good and important anointed works. But they don't get in the way of, they flow out of your relationship with the Lord. And what is the outcome then of, of a righteous ruler? Well, if we read verses 4, he gives us these beautiful metaphor descriptions. He dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So, so we have these beautiful metaphoric pictures, right? The first one is the dawn, dawns on them like the morning light. Now you can imagine how this would have resonated with the Israelites. They've just been through the period of the judges, which was a disaster. And at the end of that period, it basically finishes with the lines, everyone did whatever he wanted to. They were a king in their own hearts. The place was chaotic. Then comes along Samuel, the first prophet, and he has this grand idea that Saul would make a good king. That too was somewhat disastrous. And finally we get the anointing of this weird eighth of seven sons, guy from Hicktown, Bethlehem, uh, a son of Jesse, who on earth is Jesse, who's uh, raised up to become king. And that's the one that God has uh, chosen. So he dawns on the morning light. Suddenly Israel is taken from this mess of the judges and this mess of Saul as king. And the kingdom really does in many ways flourish. The boundaries of the kingdom are larger than they are at any other time uh, in history prior to uh, the time of David. Things do look, at least on the outside, like they're going pretty well. The other piece here is that this rain is like the rain on the dawn on the on the grass. There's a there's a sense of flourishing. There's a sense of greenery, of things budding, of things coming up and looking good. There's a sacrificial work done here to help people thrive. So that's the two things that happen. The outcome of a righteous leader is you see that the world thrives and there's hope and inspiration from dark times. So godly leadership then is first of all a calling to all who have authority. Rulers of nations, rulers of companies, rulers of departments, rulers of churches, that would be elders and deacons, rulers of families, that would be parents. It goes to anyone who has any power, whether it be positional or otherwise, over anyone else. If you are a social influencer amongst your peer groups at high school, you have power, and you should be working out how to be inspirational, to bring hope, uh, to help the community that you're with to flourish. Now, is this good advice? I, I think it is good advice. Is it just good advice? I don't think so. The Bible certainly has a lot to say about good principles, and it's not less than this, but it is certainly more than this. Is this autobiographical, well, about David? And I think the answer is yes, it is autobiographical, but not just for David. You see, David's story was pretty mixed. In a big picture point of view, the kingdom was established and it flourished. He was God's anointed, and we saw that 
and what happened in Israel. From a small picture point of view, if you were here last week and in previous weeks, you know that David was resulting in a plague which killed 70,000 people. He abused his power, he murdered and he raped. David's sin had devastating effects both on his household and on the country of Israel. So is this autobiographical? I think it is, but not of David so much as of Jesus. There's a sense here in which these are prophetic words by God describing God's rule. Now, with Christ as a righteous leader, hope and dawn, uh, the dawn comes on. There's hope and inspiration. Hope and inspiration that we will overcome our limitations. We will overcome those besetting sins that seem to ensnare us. We also, uh, with Christ, there's a sacrificial pursuit of our growth. Christ pursues the growth of those that he cares for. And here's the question. In that big picture, the kingdom is established, role, that small picture, my sin, which besets me and hurts those people around you, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as being part of that big kingdom? Are you spiritually proud? Do you see yourself as being just that small picture disaster zone, spiritually defeated? Or can you hold the tension between those? Can you live in a space where you understand that you are one of the redeemed? This is indeed autobiographical of Jesus. The prophet's words are inspired by God, and we can see this in Hebrews 1, uh, chapters 8. I'm going to read Hebrews 1. I'm going to read verse 1, then I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 to you. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And this is how he describes Jesus as ruler, as king. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, oh, that's a New Testament passage. How could this Old Testament passage possibly be talking about Jesus? Well, Hebrews is, in fact, quoting from the Old Testament. It's uh, quoting here uh, from Psalm 45. So, in fact, that description of that ruler of righteousness, that king that rules perfectly, uh, is tied in the New Testament to that Old Testament description which David is prophesizing about here. Christ is the full realization of the righteous ruler that David is prophesying about. So then we move on to the second part here, verse 5, which is the hope of the covenant household. So verse 5a is some, another reason why we use the ESV translation in the reading. This is better referenced as a question. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me with an everlasting covenant. Now, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Does, God's, does David's household stand so with God? Does it stand in that righteous state with God? Now, if you were to look at the household itself, you would have to agree that it's a mess. And we looked at that last week, right? In the household, one of his sons has just committed 
a rebellion and failed and was put to death. Three other sons have been put to death for various reasons. Most of that is a result of David's failing with Bathsheba. So you could say that the answer to the question, is not my household, or does not my household stand so with God, might be, well, not so much. Uh, maybe if you look from the outside at the kingdom, yes, but not so much. It's a mixed bag, David. You're, you're sort of half there and you're half not. But David's answer is not, oh, I stand here uh, as, a, as a family, is my household is, is, stands here righteously before the Lord. David's answer is not, look what I have done, look at my kingliness, look at all the things that worked for me, look at all the things that didn't, let's balance them out and come up with a, clue, uh, a conclusion. His answer is, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant. So David knew that his hope was not in the balancing act between what he'd done right and what he'd done wrong. It was in the everlasting covenant. And the one he's referring to here, of course, is 2 Samuel 7, where God says to him, his line will be on the throne forever. And your household and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, He's saying here that God is a rock. He's sure. He's secure. My hope and my longing is in him, not in what I've done. At least when he's at his best, and sometimes he's at his best, like with Goliath, not so much with Bathsheba. There's a mixed bag there. He realizes that his position before God stands purely on his place within the covenant. He says, I am a man after God's own heart? And the answer to that is, yeah, most of the time, but not always. Most of the time, you're a man after God's own heart. And I don't know about you, but I can identify with this. It seems very relatable to me, as Paul was saying in the introduction to our confession. Yeah, I understand what it means to be part of the covenant, but I look at my life and it doesn't always measure up. So David knows here the wreckage of his sin. He doesn't look to his accomplishments. He looks to God's promise, a covenant that is ordered and secure. And you know, he says it's ordered and secure because he knows who authors that covenant. Many of you have been betrayed by people. People have broken their promises. Some of you have been in marriages where marriage vows have been broken. So those vows, those promises, those commitments, they haven't been honored. But, but David here is realizing that his status before God is premised on God's faithfulness in the covenant. He is resting simply on the character of God. And it's an eternal promise. Now, this is probably the thing we most need to learn from David's life. He's a man after God's own heart, and he even realizes that that statement simply means that I trust and rely on nothing but the covenant promises of a faithful God. Now, for us, I certainly know for me, McLaren and Abby are not going to grow up to be on any thrones. No promise was made to me that my line would be on uh, an eternal line of royalty. But if you think through this promise, you know, and there's a clue here in the term everlasting. You see, none of the kings in David's line were truly righteous. And in fact, we look at the eternal or everlasting word as it describes this ruler in other pieces of text. 
In Daniel 9.24, it's described as it is here, as a term of righteousness or justice. In Isaiah 54.8, eternal everlasting kindness. Jeremiah 31.34, eternal forgiveness. So there's these characteristics that seem to exist with this ruler that this righteous ruler that David's talking about that's going to be on the throne. And we can see none of David's descendants, nor David, was able to claim that, except for the one. And here we understand that that one was Christ again. When it says, the everlasting shall not, prem- uh, shall not perish, he's not talking here about generation after generation after generation. He's talking about the one that comes who will not die and will live eternally and is the everlasting king, and that's Christ. So we don't see that promise to David as being the only way to interpret this or even the fullest way to interpret this. That covenant with David points to the new covenant that was established with us. And you know that when we do communion, when we stand up, this is the cup of the new covenant, sealed with his blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. There's a restoration that happens that holds our household, our community together with God. It's now expressed as a new covenant sealed with the blood of Christ. And that news of the covenant actually brings us to this third piece, which is actually hard, I think, the destruction of the ungodly. See, God's love, and I'm going to say something now which might shock some of you, God's love is not unconditional. Let me say that again. God's love is not unconditional. You can only say that when you're in the covenant. You cannot say that when you're not in the covenant. When you're not under his wing, his love is not unconditional. In fact, his love is not present to those who are not in his covenant. So here we go. Covenant membership is not optional for a better life. Hey, people who are in the covenant do better in leadership. They survive better in the world. Covenant membership is actually the great divide between those who will inherit the kingdom of God and those who face eternal damnation. And that's a hard thing to say. It's the difference between those that are blessed, the ones in the covenant, and those who are eternally condemned. And it's a very, very hard word. In fact, I was looking through, because we are doing some preparation for, for officer training in the church, I was looking through some of the exceptions to the Westminster Confession that previous elders of North Point have tried to slip through the door. And in fact, one of them was this fact. One of our previous elders submitted an exception to the rule that they don't think that God eternally damns people who don't fall under the covenant. And it's not just our elders. We worked that through with him, and he came to a place where he was able to submit to that. One of my favorite all-time preachers, in fact, my hero in terms of preaching is John Stott. And John Stott himself chose not to accept that. But I would actually encourage you to read the account of John the Baptist in Matthew, where John the Baptist himself talks about Jesus being the one who separates the wheat from the chaff, who, who judges. And then again in Matthew 13, where Jesus tells the story about the parable of the son who finally comes after all of the prophets. And I'll read that to you because he's explaining this parable to them. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stand for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. The enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The harvesters are angels. 
As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we don't talk about this a lot because we focus on the promises of being in the covenant, but it's important that we realize that the reality of not being in the covenant is dire. And hopefully, as we move into missions, Mom, this inspires you to go and find those who are in the covenant but not yet uh, worshipping God. So let us get out there and find them, the lost, those that God has written in the book of life who are not in the building, not in the community, not part of the church yet. That is the work of missions. And I encourage you to take that very seriously because that was one of the ways God himself through Jesus Christ in the, at the authority when he did the Great Commission interpreted the cultural mandate in Genesis. We are to go and make disciples, to teach them to obey, to baptize them into the covenant community. We are to, we are to be ambassadors of Christ, bringing that message of hope to the world. So let me conclude by saying this. Is this a eulogy? Not really. It's more of a prophecy. It's a prophecy that actually connects Jesus himself uh, as the fulfillment of who David was trying to be. David was born of Jesse. Pretty insignificant. Jesus was born to Mary. Who? Who? Now, of course, we know who Mary was. But if you were back then, Mary? Mary? Who's Mary? Mary is even less significant than Jesse was. David was an insignificant shepherd boy. Seven, eight out of seven. Jesus was raised in obscurity, had to flee to Egypt, was a carpenter, grew up in poverty. David as king was raised on high. He was anointed as king over David's, David's descendants. Jesus as king as king was raised on high, the king of kings, all authority on heaven and earth, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Under David, Israel flourished. Under Jesus, all those in the new covenant will flourish. We are restored to his children and we become heirs of his kingdom. We spoke before that God's love is not unconditional. It depends on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We also said that David had an advantage in last words because God wrote them for him. But I think it's even better when we hear God speak them for himself. Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. The work to establish the new covenant is done. We have nothing that we can add to it. So I'm going to conclude today not with a prayer, but with a benediction that I will use again when I send you. That is from Hebrews 13. And I'm going to ask you to stand because it is a benediction. Now, may the peace of God, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.